You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, the NOM. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the 1980s Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I am your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, we have a full-length story that will be written by Doug Murray and drawn by Michael Golden, whereas the last two issues will feature a fill-in by future regular artist Wayne Van Sant, as well as a half an issue of new material and a reprint of some of Murray and Golden's Savage Tales stuff, Although I'm pretty sure that was new to most readers who were picking up the nom off of newsstands in 1987. This particular issue is the nom number 9, and that came out on May 19, 1987. It was cover dated August 1987. What's interesting about it is that when you open it up, the issue, it says October 1966, and the last issue is August 1966, which means that we skipped September. Although, we are caught up with the real-time narrative that Murray has had going. In all honesty, it doesn't detract from the story. I completely wouldn't have noticed it if I weren't looking for a song at the beginning of the episode. (laughs) And the song is Reach Out, I'll Be There by the Four Tops, which hit number one of the Billboard charts on October 15, 1966, which is right around when most of the action of this issue does take place. Our issue here is called Pride Goeth. It was written by Doug Murray, penciled by Michael Golden, letters and colors by Phil Felix, Larry Hama was your editor, and Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief. The cover by Golden has a blue background with Sarge, Thomas, Marks, and Rob looking off into the distance and colored in an orange glow, while Albergo sits in front of them colored in green and white, a rather ghostly image. We open at the hooch where Marks and Rob are reading Stars and Stripes, and Marks is staring in disbelief at a photo of someone protesting via method of self-immolation or burning yourself alive. Albergo, who is lounging behind them dismissively, says that the guy is crazy and everyone else is in the country. Rob wonders if they're serious about ending the war, but don't know how to, don't know how to do it. Ram Narain then walks by and says in order to win the war, they simply have to bomb the dinks back to the Stone Age. Rob thinks that this is a little extreme, and Ram Narain brushes him off and mentions that the re-up NCO is coming through the next day. Albergo says that he wants to re-up, and Marx is shocked, as Albergo is short and he can't see why he'd want to extend. Albergo says that he figures this war is going to be over soon anyway. It'll be done six months early. Marx starts with a, yeah, but... But is interrupted by Sarge, who tells them that they have to head north because there's trouble. Marx tells Albergo to think about it, and ten minutes later, they're among several squads boarding choppers for what looks like a pretty big battle, not the typical sweep of the jungle they're used to doing. One of the guys offers Marks an interior seat, but Ed says they'll have to, he'll take the outer seat because, well, he is insisting on trying to get over this air sickness. Less than an hour later, they're in Tainan province, which is near the Cambodian border. They land, and we get the story from Rob, who tells him that the 25th started to sweep through there a couple of days ago looking for a reported VC strongpoint and found more than they had bargained for. They're there to reinforce and continue the sweep. The guys go into the jungle and begin sweeping, getting very deep and winding up in an ambush. Albergo provides rocket fire while Marks covers him with his machine gun, his actions being a little John Wayne for Mike. One of the guys has been wounded and they radio in for help, but they'll have to hold on for a minute 
until artillery can neutralize the area ahead of them. Some of the squad it takes the injured soldier to the staging area outside of the dense jungle while Marks, Albergo, and some others stay behind. Albergo takes his helmet off to rest for a minute, and they're immediately shot at by a sniper. They fire at the sniper, and it looks like they get him, or at least the barrage of artillery gets them, when Ramnarain, who had been sent back with the others, comes back figuring they all need help. Rob gets artillery on the line, he tells them to hold fire, and then puts Ramnarain on point while they begin to move out. As they head back to the jungle, Rob reminds them of how many other soldiers are around them, and Marks asks Albergo if he still wants to re-up. Albergo says that he will, and the guys set up camp for the night. Marks first takes first watch, and later that night there are some explosions. He wakes up Albergo, and the two watch several trip flares go off. They wait and wait, and then Marks starts screaming, No! 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 And Rob wakes him up, as Ed had been having a nightmare, and he was shouting in his sleep. Believe it or not, there were trip flares in the jungle. The guys look out to see several enemy fighters coming at them. Rob tells them to hold the VC here and goes to call for help. Marks and Albergo take out the VC and then see an APC roll through the jungle. They follow it, they catch up with Sarge, and he tells them that the area is a beehive for enemy activity, and that's all they know. The APC is hit with an RPG, and things get very heavy very quickly as it's obvious that they're surrounded. Sarge gets on the radio and calls for air support due to heavy enemy presence, and has the men pull back to behind the smoking APC. They wait for a moment, and then they get their air support. That night, Rob tells Albergo and Marks that they have, the op- they have apparently stumbled into the VC command post for the entire area. The VC are determined to hold, meaning that this isn't going to be easier, nor is it going to be routine. A moment later, they spot something moving, and they see three VC soldiers, two with AK-47s and one with an RPG. They leave their bunker just as the rocket is fired, and then begin to fire back as more and more soldiers emerge from the jungle, swarming the men of the 23rd. Marks runs out of ammo and is saved at the last moment by Sarge, who brings in some reinforcements and helps finish the fight. The next day, Marks and Albergo are talking about the night before. And Albergo says that they're okay, and after he extends, he extends, he's out of the army after a few months, so it's no big. Mark starts to say, yeah, but, but is interrupted by sniper fire. A small firefight ensues, and Marks looks down at, as someone calls for a medic. The very last page is a splash page of Ed Marks with his back to the camera, cradling Mike Albergo's dead body, while Rob and the medic look at them sorrowfully. Next to Mike is his helmet which has a bullet hole in it, and says, Ha! Miss me, Charlie. At the bottom of the page is a letter that we get part of, but reads, Mr. and Mrs. Michael Albergo Sr., it is my sad duty to inform you that your son Michael was killed in action on the 15th of October this year. I was Michael's Michael's platoon leader for the past nine months, and I want to assure you that Michael was a fine, and and it, it cuts off from there. Now, while this issue is definitely very good, definitely very powerful, I'll get to that in a bit, I have two pretty big gripes. First, Albergo's death is telegraphed, uh, starting on the cover, because he looks like a ghost in front of all the other guys. It probably gives you the idea that he's probably dead at some point. Second, he and Marx talk so much about his wanting to re-up that it comes off, well, as... kind of comes off like this. Mm. Hey, McBain, 
You keep eating them hot legs, you're never gonna make it to a pension. Come on, live a little, Scoy. No, thank you. Got me a future, partner. I'm two days away from retirement. My daughter's graduating from college. Little Susie's going up. And as soon as we nail Mendoza, my old lady and I are gonna sail around the world like we always wanted. We just christened a boat. Oh, yes, sir. Everything's gonna be just perfect. Stop talking crazy. No, 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 no. Just do one thing for me. Get Mendoza. Mendoza! All right. That's me being a bit pithy, of course. But there are times when the story is a bit too predictable here. Albergo's close to getting out and talking about re-upping, and they have close calls, and he's careless at times, and, well, of course he's going to end up dying. That being said, this issue is still touching because of the fact that we've gotten to know Albergo for the last eight issues, and we get how devastated Marx is. Mike was the first friend Ed made back in issue one. He provided a bit of levity to moments that were very serious, and he definitely was the guy you didn't want to see go. If this had been Top, for instance, eh, we would have been sort of happy to see him get what he deserved. Had it been some random red shirt, we really wouldn't care. Plus, for all the telegraphing we had, the action was very heavy, and you kind of were wondering if they were going to get out okay, and the last page, well, it's, it's very poignant. It's beautifully done. Golden turns Mark's back toward us, so we don't have to see the gore of Albergo's dead body. It's obviously done with a code in mind, but I think it has enough of an emotional impact because it's not graphic. And and I'm seeing that in a lot of this book, whereas in, in a lot of current comics, there is this... And, and people have talked about this in a lot of other places before. There's this need to be overtly graphic, whereas what you don't see sometimes is more... Uh, effective. And, you know, we've we've slowly gotten to know Mike, just as Ed did, and and we know these two have been together for months, so it has more of an impact than had this just been a first or second storyline's ending. Had this been the second issue where we see Alberto or something, or the first one where we meet him. Yeah, it's a bit heavy-handed. And it, the ending is telegraphed from like miles away, and that shouldn't be. It could have been a little bit more of a shock to the system, but I don't think it takes away too much from what is a great, very powerful issue. When I get back, I'll talk about historical context, letters, and we'll go through the ads. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. 
visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. So before I get to things specific to 1966... I looked up self-immolation, and I didn't see any incidents that were famous in 66, but it was a form of protest that was used both in Vietnam and the United States during this time. The most famous one, which had a very, very famous photograph associated with, that I'm sure is sort of guessing is what Murray was referencing on the first page, took place in 1963, where a Buddhist monk named Thich Quang Duc set himself on fire in a busy intersection outside of the Canadian embassy in Saigon as a protest of the rule of against the rule of the then South Vietnamese premier Diem. Several other nuns and monks would follow suit up until Diem was finally deposed. I believe that a future issue deals with this directly or something, uh, but it's actually way down the line. Tay Ninh Province is an area of Vietnam near the Cambodian border, has a population of about 1 million people. The action of the troops in the story suggests that this is part of Operation Attleboro, which was a major operation to sweep that part of South Vietnam for guerrilla fighters. According to History.com, on October 15, 1966, U.S. troops moved into the province as part of this sweep. And here's their summary of the operation. The purpose of this operation was to find and eliminate all enemy troops west of the Michelin rubber plantation. It was the largest U.S. operation to date and included elements of the U.S. 1st and 25th Infantry Divisions, the 196th Life Infantry Brigade, and the 173rd Airborne Brigade, and at least two South Vietnamese Army Battalions. Engagement continues, continued through the middle of November. At the height of the fighting, a record 20,000 Allied troops were committed. They were opposed by major elements of the 9th Viet Cong Division, one of the best-trained communist formations. Communist resistance was strong because the Tainan area contains the site of the principal Viet Cong Command Center for guerrilla operations in South Vietnam and the central office of the National Liberation Front. Operation Attleboro ended on November 25th. By then, 2,130 Viet Cong and North Vietnamese troops had been killed. As to the rest of October of 66, October 9th is actually a particularly dark day in the war because there's two massacres. The first is at Binh Thai, and the second is at Dien Nai Phuoc. Both of them were perpetrated by South Korean soldiers and were massacres that became an all-too-familiar sight, especially by those who would become familiar with more well-known massacres by, such as My Lai. The South Korean soldiers were responsible for the burning of villages and slaughter of, their, of the citizens, including elderly people, women, and children. On October 16th, Grace Slick performs with the Jefferson Airplane for the first time, which I mention because, well, this is the 60s, and Jefferson Airplane is one of the most notable bands of the 60s. I am sure I will play some classic Jefferson Airplane at some point over the course of this podcast, and if I don't and I start to run out of time, I'll just put We Built This City on. On October 24th, negotiations begin about the war uh, out in Manila in the Philippines. Uh, October 26th, there's a fire on the USS Oriskany, which is stationed in the Gulf of Tonkin, and the fire kills 44 crewmen. That's it for the history portion. Moving on to... 
the letters are incoming for this month. We have a letter from Peter Fisher, Portland, Maine. A quick letter provoked by one of the nom by the one in nom number six from John Evans Jr. reply to it. Both of you are partly right and partly incorrect. From Stanton's Vietnam Order of Battle. Four slash twenty three, that is the fourth battalion of the twenty three regiment infantry mechanized, was withdrawn from the one hundred and seventy second brigade in Alaska, january twenty second, nineteen sixty six, and arrived in Vietnam April twenty ninth, nineteen sixty six via Hawaii. Until it left Vietnam december twenty sixth, nineteen seventy, four twenty three was a component of the first brigade twenty fifth infantry division, so please don't go changing unit patches. There was a letter in a previous issue about how uh, the person said the patch was wrong on the infantry sleeve because of, for whatever reason, historical inaccuracy, all that. The 23rd Infantry Division division was organized in-country on September 25, 1967, incorporated the t- elements of Task Force Oregon. I never heard of it referenced to as the 23rd, and I'm surprised Mr. Evans does so. It was known as the Americal Division, and after the mid- middle of 69, the Americal, Americali, and I suspect other epithets. I heard these from people who have been in the division. I've seen several numbers of the NAM. The details are hauntingly authentic, but I don't get much of the feel of madness that that war particularly had. I hope you punch it up a few levels. And Mr. Fisher, the Doug Murray himself replies, Mr. Fisher, first of all, thanks a lot for that clear description. I screwed up royally in my own letter reply back in number six. Despite what others may think, I really do know the difference between a regiment and a division. Unfortunately, I misreferenced my own order of battle and didn't recheck before publication. For all of you that have written mea culpa, it's all my fault. Well, I'll try to get it right down in the future. Uh, while I'm at it, for those of you who have written about the Claymores, they really did have all the n- different nasty loads I described, but not, or, not all were issued and used in the RVN. Sorry about the misconception, Doug. There's one with a few questions. Are you going to show Doug Murray in the wonderful but violent comic book? They say, nah, probably not. Do you use real names for the characters? Yes, I use real names for the characters. Uh, some of the names are real grunts from the nom, some of the names of friends and people I work with. I think it makes things more realistic. Who came up with the idea for the nom? Several people, inclu- including Jim Shooter, Larry Hama, and myself. Um, we have a letter from a girl. I may be the only girl who's written in, in about the great comic you've got. I get your book every month along with G.I. Joe. I think this mag is out of sight. I think Doug Murray is a great writer. The whole crew is outstanding. I don't know if I was born when the war was going on, but I know a few things about it. When I look forward to whenever issues the nom notes, I just love the way the GI slanged up and made words like they did. It made up words like they did. I hope there will never be a war as long, as hard or as long as Vietnam or any war for that matter. Uh, I'm going into the U.S. Marine Corps in three years. I wish I knew how to prepare myself for boot camp. I know it will be rough. Is there anybody out there who can, wants to write to me? I'm sure. I sure would like to hear from them. Stacy Gwynn uh, from North Park, Alabama. As for that funny GI called Mike, I'm sure he sure hope he knows how to keep his tail out of the gunfire. I think he's weird. Oh, well, sorry, Stacy. Uh, hope you didn't read this issue. Um, and there's some more congratulations and what have you. Our nom notes uh, saying some of these you've seen, some of the some. Uh, of these are new, long one this time, so pay close attention. APC, Armored Personnel Carrier, a sort of tank minus the cannon to, pr- cannon to protect troops in the field. Catch some Zs, obviously get some sleep. Dinks, also slants, goots, etc. A derogatory term for Asian locals. Slang for locals will come up every once in a while. Uh, in fact, one of those words is used in, a, in another issue at some point, too, and then I'll talk a little bit about that. 
Dust off. A hurry to chopper pickup of personnel usually done for wounded or trapped troops. Extend. Extend your tour of duty. Take more time in the NOM in exchange for some other benefit down the road like an early out. Fast movers or jet aircraft such as F-4s. Hat and out. Moving out, picking up your hat or equipment and getting along. A click, of course, kilometer. LAW or law, light anti-tank weapon. A little disposable shoulder fire missile originally intended for tanks, but used throughout the NAM as sort of an all-purpose weapon to knock down bunkers, houses, enemy strong points, etc. Poop. The word and explanation of what's going on. Re-up NCO. The non-commissioned officer, usually a sergeant, who had the unpleasant duty of trying to get men to re-enlist in the army. A tough job in a combat zone. RPG, rocket-propelled grenade, the communist version of our law. RT, radio telephone, the communications medium to base and other commands. Short, the soldier's dream, down to a relatively small number of days before leaving the NAM or the army. A slick as a chopper, stars and stripes, is the in-house military newspaper, available every morning, everywhere in the military. And trip flares are flares set up with trip wires so anyone trying to creep up on an established position would trip the wires and advertise his presence and position. That does it for NOM notes. Let's move on to ads. We have the same M&M as ad. Nine issues in. Packs of fun for everyone. The same ad. We have... Actually, a lot of these ads tend to repeat. I guess it's a, I guess they tend to repeat um, because you know they're on the newsstand for so long. Wanted, brave and resourceful kids, brave and resourceful enough to become time travelers. A a role playing game from Bandom called Time Machine. Um, or maybe they're books. They look at books. They're books. Interesting. The Westfield Company subscription service. Another Robotech role-playing game. Um, I did a post on the Robotech novels, Robotech and the Robotech novels, back, oh, like two or three years ago on Pop Culture Affidavit, because uh, I had read, I've read all of the novels up until the end of the circle, so I didn't read any of the ones that came out after 18, but uh, the Jack McKinney novels are really fascinating. And if you would like to, uh, oh, it was last Valentine's Day, Stella and Don Grant did a episode of Bad Girl to Oracles, like a shipper special or something, and they did, or something like that, but they did a whole episode on Robotech. And it's really, really fun to listen to. I had a blast. So uh, go to Batgirl to Oracle or thebatmanuniverse.net and check out Batgirl to Oracle and go look up the episode from back in February 14th. I don't remember what. Uh, February 14th, 2013. I don't remember which number that is, but it was really fun. And If you're interested in Robotech, go check out my post over at popcultureaffidavit.com. We have a New England comics ad. G.I. Joe is Action Force, they mention, uh, which I believe was the UK magazine version of G.I. Joe. I, I want to say that like that's what it was over in England. Um, Andy Leyland, if you're listening to this... <laughs> Let me know if you have any recollection of this or if I'm just talking completely out of my ass here. I am talking completely out of my ass here, but I just want to make sure that what I'm pulling out of my ass is, you know, not complete crap. East Coast Comics has an ad. Um, I, you know, for years I, I, I used to, like, write down what I wanted out of this. And in all honesty, I should have, like, I, for years I would go on to order from Mile High Comics year after year after year, but part of me is like, I should have ordered from this one in New Jersey instead because it, it was closer than Mile High. There's a comic called Reagan's Raiders. 
Parody on the President. Interesting. Tales of the Teen Titans. Teen Titans stuff is number two was going for $9. That's the first appearance of Deathstroke. Wow. The reprints are going for 40 cents. No real mention of where the uh, where the Judas Contract stuff sits. Uh, X Men one thirty six to one forty going for eight bucks a piece. All right, we are not up to the uh, decent copies of Batman. To be honest with you, um, prices on the copies of Batman. We're not really up to the uh, to the new um, to the death of Robin yet. New Superman. That's a lot of like stuff that's under a buck here. All right, moving on. The Marvel Supermart ad. Any of these that I notice? Dave's Comics in the Village Shopping Center in Richmond. Not familiar. Chesapeake, anywhere in New York. Brain Damage Comics in Brooklyn, New York. Collector's Comics in Wantaw. Comics Underground in Flushing. Fantasia in Hartsdale. Don't know if any of those places are still open. We have a hodgepodge ad. Jokes, jokes, jokes over... 200 Spectacular Jokes in our catalog. We have Self-Defense, Kung Fu, and Karate. New York Comic Book Convention, June 27th, 28th at the Roosevelt Hotel. No real uh, no real uh, description of who's going to be there. There's this giant overstock sale of Salipa's Sol- Comic World in Winnipeg, and the, the copy is so hard to read that I can't imagine anyone actually took advantage of this ad. It is like all typewriter typed, and it, it's fit to about a quarter of a page. And the font size, if, if unfortunately I'm not in my classroom right now, I have a font size ruler. It's an old school, it was left over from an old yearbook advisor. Uh, I'm currently a yearbook advisor at the high school where I teach. And so, but I keep it around because it's a nice straight edge and it's kind of like kooky to look at. And it has like a font pica calculator or whatever. Like, this is really small. This has got to be at least f- maybe six, maybe even four point type. God, that's small. Um, pranks, ads, and stuff. Bullpen Bulletins has a profile on Jim Shooter, who's not long for Marvel at this point. Um, some items about how Walt Simonson, Bill Sinkevitz won some awards. Virginia and John Romita had a grandchild. And Spider-Man's getting married this summer. All right. We have a... House 2, the second story ad once again. We have an advanced D&D ad on the back cover. We have a subscription ad, but it says cheaper by the dozen. Save up to $2 in every Marvel title and your first 12 issues subscription for $7.75. And then each additional title only costs $7. And that's actually, um, at this point, that's almost like one free issue. Uh, And you have a bag with Hulk punching out of the side, and you have She-Hulk, Cap, Reed Richards, Wolverine, Doctor Strange, and Spider-Man, and the Wasp. And that does it. Way to stretch for time, Panneries, with the ads, the letters. Um, <laughs> come back in two weeks. I will be covering the NOM number 10, providing the usual walk through historical context and what have you. Until then, thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. 
The NOM and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Ah!